We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I am your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We have a lot to cover in this episode. Alan, how you feeling? Doing good. Enjoyed a great weekend of college football. Ready to attack it. Let's get it on. Yeah, this weekend felt great to have both college and the NFL. It feels like Indeed. my weekends are busy, even though I'm spending most of it just watching football. It's, it's really a wonderful American thing. It's a great time of the year. And I cherish it. I also cherish all of you. Thank you for being our fans, for listening to the show. Even if you're not our fans and you listen to the show, that's still amazing. Thank you. If you're one of the ones on Reddit that likes to write about how I'm sometimes too critical, I love you too. Welcome. That's all about this. Opinions are wonderful. They don't have to be right. They just have to be yours. It's what makes the world go around. But thanks for listening to ours. We certainly do appreciate it. If you like the content, drop us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Write us an email, contact us, text us, whatever it takes. Give us some feedback. We will listen. We promise. We always attempt to make this show bigger, better, more exciting for everyone involved. And of course, please consider becoming a patron. We love our patrons. You can do that on Patreon. You can find that link anywhere on our social media links. And of course, as always, this time of season, we have some new donors we would like to thank. My good friend Mike Rosado 
who I believe listens to this podcast while he's training for his like ultra marathon runs because the guy's insane. Welcome aboard. Thank you for the large dono. David Lee, former intern, former baseball player, national sure champion, that's him or baseball not player, the David Lee. NBA player, David Lee? Not the NBA player, although he may listen to the it podcast. could be him. You don't could know. Be. But this David Lee, Gainesville legend, thanks for joining. I know you listen to this pod while you're driving around. And Ryan Burke, welcome aboard. Uh, on the throne, on the Gator Nation football podcast throne, still Alexander Leventhal. He's not giving it up. It was a Game of Thrones show on HBO, it would be him the entire time. He's just not giving it up. However, hot on his heels, the number one challenger for the throne, Diego Rivera, who's right there, Alexander. He's, right there. he's so close. In fact, he's a little frustrated that you won't give your throne up even for just one week. But Diego, we're going to keep giving you love each and every week because you, you, sir, are also in the circle of power. But to all of you who give, we appreciate it. Alan, give some more love to some of our patrons. Yeah, a few shout-outs here. Andrew Bergen, Anthony Lapore. Cameron McCaskill, Chris Hall, Christopher Millward, Corey Spradlin, Daniel Johns, Daniel Rychek, someone just named David. He just goes by David. I like that. And then David Roberts, and also another one-namer, Dimitri, whoever you are, what's up? Drunken Manatee, my favorite. That's literally what's in the system, Drunken Manatee, and Eccentricity LL. That's a great one, back-to-back there. Edwin Hernandez Gunn, Eric Kaler, Etienne Jair Rosman, another great name, Garrett Pignati, Gary Zeitlin, the immortal Guillermo Diaz. Wow, what a legend that guy is. And Ian McFetridge. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate you guys being patrons to the show. Yeah, the Hall of Famer, Guillermo Diaz, in flag football. Indeed. Yeah, listening to the show. Also a co-founder of my investment firm. So extra cool when you're... Your co-founders are listening on their own. I don't make him listen. I promise. All right, Alan, let's jump into these opening thoughts. We both predicted the score to be in the 60s. We both said it should be in the 60s, but you doubled down and said that if we were under 50, specifically under 50, that would be disappointing. Are you disappointed? Slightly. Not as disappointed as I would have thought if you told me the score beforehand. A lot of this comes down to the first quarter where... We were being stubborn about a few things, running the ball, a few missed opportunities, and then they were eating clock. And they had a few weirdly successful drives. Obviously, they never scored. But they took the air out of the ball and drained as much clock as they could, which really limited what we were going to do offensively time-wise. But we were certainly not looking to put on a show or put the pedal to the metal. I think the coaches really looked as more of a developmental week than a, you know, a late the fan base kind of week. So a little disappointed. I thought definitely left some points on the board. Wanted to see a few more improvements than we saw. But it wasn't like they came out and laid an egg uh, like we saw a lot of other college football teams who we'll get to soon. So it it was, a, I think, not a total disappointment. I would say a slight disappointment. What about you? Yeah, it was disappointing. I think it's fair to say that. The first half, I think, may have even bordered on very disappointing okay. with regards to how we executed on the offensive side of the ball. It was a very boring game. It was a very conservative game plan. It was not what we expected. Uh, we did say that, that UT Martin was a well-coached team, and if you looked at their offensive and defensive line, Allens, they were not a tiny team. This was not you know, an FCS team that you just destroyed by 100 points. And, and the Vegas spread was indicative of that. We did cover that spread. Uh, so, you know, all in all, I think it kind of was what it was. It was a lackluster game where we sort of road graded them 
out of the building, but it was not a game full of fireworks and excitement. And as a fan, something that was, you know, truly tremendous, so to speak. So certainly disappointing. Maybe as we're going to unpack here in the analysis, is it a cause for concern? Uh, Do we want to pull too many things from this game? Yes and no. There are some big things we're going to talk about on today's podcast that I think are very indicative of where this season could go. And you don't always say that when you play a game like this, but I think there are some things we're seeing here uh, now given two weeks of examination that are that are recurring and I think are probably causing some concern for the coaches. Yeah, I, let me ask you in this kind of fashion. Do you consider this a successful outing for the Gators? I know we talked about it being disappointing, but was it successful? It's maybe a different kind of metric to put it through. I think that it's going to be successful and that it was instructive. Sometimes you play these games and you can't really pull maybe too much from film. You're sort of just overrunning your opponent that that people look and think, well, that wasn't great. But UT Martin was actually able to put us in some some unfavorable situations at times, especially their defense versus our offense, that I think will be very instructive. And that's that's great for us. When you schedule an opponent like this, A, you want to beat them, and B, you want to get your return on your investment, which is to get a lot of your guys into the game, and then actually to get some film that's useful. And I think by all accounts, this, t- this game against Tennessee Martin – was fantastic for that. I mean, really, it was a great opponent with that regard. We have a lot of stuff on film that I think is going to be useful all throughout this week uh, and, and including future opponents, especially because UT Martin Allen, they run a very unconventional defense. They run a lot of 3 3 fives, right. very, very interesting and unusual formations. And for a young offensive line together, not young necessarily in their ages, but experiencing things together there are a lot of things that they now have on film that they would not have had if they played a team that was a more straightforward sort of vanilla defense they see every day. Right. They were doing some strange things, not really strange for them, but unconventional for a lot of fo- football teams, dropping eight into coverage a lot. Um, yeah, like you said, running a, a defensive style that not a lot of teams run. So from that perspective, right, I think it was successful. We'll talk a little bit. A few really key injuries, obviously, losing Kadarius Toney, C.J. Henderson. Both are number ones. So that should tell you something about those guys' place in the program and their perceived status. Um, Hopefully not for too long for both of them. It seems like Kadarius will be out a little longer than C.J. So you're hoping to come out of this injury-free or relatively injury-free. The Gators have had some weird injury luck or people leaving and nobody in the top line until this week. So we've talked a lot about the depth of those relative positions. We'll get into that a little bit more later, but you don't want to see any of your guys get hurt in a game like this. That's the worst thing. So successful in one sense, maybe unsuccessful and that you got your two of your star players hurt. But let's go ahead and look at the game itself. Uh, we're going to break it down. Offense, defense, special teams, coaching. Let's talk about the offense specifically. Um, what was UT Martin's game plan against us? What were they trying to do? And what was our game plan to combat that? This was actually the game plan that we thought Miami may have used against us. It's the one I mentioned before that podcast. They came out and they played a lot of quarters, which is the most popular way to stop an Urban Meyer offense, especially the Urban Meyer 1.0, which is kind of the Dan Mullen permanent offense. Quarters defense is a cover four. Basically, your, your corners and your safeties are going to play well off the ball. And even if they start on the ball, they're going to bail. And so it's very safe for all of the throws to be underneath. And uh, they're really trying to use their safeties, Allen, to help defend the run. So their safeties are very aggressive. If they read that it's not a pass, both safeties are coming downhill. 
as if they're strong safeties to help tackle. And they were very good tacklers. So in essence, even though you may look pre-snap and say, okay, well, I've got seven guys in the box versus their six guys. As soon as that ball's a run play, their two safeties are coming straight downhill, giving them a plus one number. So it's a way to kind of bend but don't break on D. And they, they effectively did this, especially for the first half. And it did give us quite a few problems. The one thing I thought they did that was really intelligent was they moved their linebackers far out into space. Very, very weird, honestly. He was halfway in between our slot receiver and sort of their their um, defensive end, which is kind of in a no-man's land spot. And he would either sprint to the flat to guard like a pop route or a quick hitch route, or he would come help on the run. And they randomized this enough that it was it was good, it was solid. And that's what you would do to help give yourself a, an advantage against a team that's much faster than you. If that linebacker comes more inside, he lines up more traditionally uh, inside that defensive end or over top of him, he'll never catch P. Ryan to the edge or Tony to the edge. So they used their own defensive spacing, which actually served two purposes. One, it put them in a good place, Allen, and two, it really confused our tight ends and offensive linemen when they did come in to stop the run. They had oftentimes no idea who to block. It messed up their keys and their assignments. And uh, good for UT Martin. And that's what we're talking about. And we said this is a good thing for the team to see. They did not just come out and run something. They put time into their game plan and uh, and it showed. Yeah, they were doing some weird things. And obviously it bit them a couple times. Uh, the, the few fireworks that did come into play for the Gators were the long passes to Cleveland and Jefferson where they were essentially wide open. So we busted them a few times, I'm sure, on some either they got out of place or they guessed wrong. Um, so it did allow us to have some big plays, but it also, like you said, stifled us. And for the most part, other than those few big plays, we were, I would say, very conservative against them. We were not trying to beat them uh, with exotic stuff. Of course, you don't want to put any too much stuff on film. And I think we were really stubborn about running the ball. And from my perspective, it seemed like the coaches, like we talked about last week, it didn't go great against Miami. We need some more reps. So they were going to do it no matter what. And it wasn't that effective. And so I don't, you know, whether you want to say it's stubbornness or conservative, uh, a, a lackluster, very slow start to the game. Let's move on to where we were successful, though. James, what did you like that we did well? I thought we were patient, and, and that's kind of the key. So the other side of conservative or stubborn, I guess. Right. We were conservative and stubborn. And again, I don't like the game plan that Dan Mullen employs. So on this podcast, you're going to hear me say two things. One, I evaluate what the coaches are doing according to their own technique. And, and I readily admit there's a lot of different ways to win football games, right? There are a lot of valuable, solid winning philosophies. The one that I espouse is not the only one you can win with. So on this pod, you'll hear me talk a lot about what I like attack-wise, passing concept-wise. But we can also evaluate what Dan does. And I think what you said is true. So the game plan was conservative, but it wasn't just to be conservative to try to win the game safely. It was conservative to attempt to execute on things we're not executing well on. What I give us credit for is we were patient in executing these things with sticking with our principles to get these guys to learn, which I think is good coaching. If you want to blow out a team that's playing safe quarters and you're much more athletic than them, you just know that you can go a little bit heavier, bring in an extra tight end, give yourself a little bit more time, and your receivers are going to get open. If you give Franks a couple of seconds back there and even let him just pick one receiver to throw to against an overmatched opponent, you could hit those plays. That's not going to help you in the future. It's also not going to be the system I run, which is a more open, aggressive passing style. So before we ran, that made sense. So we were successful being patient. And then largely, Alan, we were more successful because we were just more talented than them. We did make one key adjustment entering the second half. And in fact, I kind of just tipped it. 
we moved away from our traditional 11 personnel, one tight end, one running back, three receivers, and moved into a 12 personnel, which we don't do often. Uh, we had two tight ends. So we had both Kroll and Pitts on the field, and we went heavy is what you would call it. This helped with both the run and the pass in the second half, and that's why we were much, much more successful. And Allen, largely this is due to the fact that on film, Kroll is an infinitely better blocker right now than Pitts is. Yes. And in fact, if you were to grade Pitts after this game blocking, I'd give him a zero. He's absolutely atrociously bad. And it's something they're going to have to address this week against Kentucky because he's a negative blocker out there. You might as well not have him out there, in which case you should put a fourth receiver out and spread that way. So they're going to have to figure something out. I think what they did was try to get him more reps because he's so athletic in the pass game. You can't just tip your hand by saying every time Pitts comes in, we're passing. You cannot do that at this level, and they're trying their best to get him to figure this out. But so far, uh, that that's tough for us. But good adjustment, I think, by the staff to, to get the offense still rolling within the scheme of what we're doing without abandoning it and getting those guys a chance to continue to execute those blocks. And they did start to execute a little bit better. There's a lot of plays in the first half where we're running our first-team offensive line with our first-team running back, and we're going nowhere. That's disconcerting. Uh, but as the game went on, we made some adjustments, which you're going to have to do every game. Your, your game plan will never go flawlessly unless the other team just makes zero adjustments. So I like that the coaching staff was willing to do that. It, it did feel better in the second half when we were opening up a few more holes. We're executing a little bit better, uh, missing on a few less blocks. And this is, you know, again, the offensive line. It's going to take time. I wasn't expecting them to be all world. Now you want them to be excellent against Tennessee Martin. They were not. Let's go ahead and talk about where we struggled a little bit. Cause this, this is the headline for me. If I'm looking at this game to tell me something about the rest of our season, the thing it might tell me is that we're going to struggle at in the run game all year long, potentially. So let me ask you this. So I feel like this is the thing that was generating the most discussion. This was, the thing that most people are concerned about, the thing that I'm most concerned about, why were we having such a difficult time? Was it because our scheme was lacking? Was it because we were running into bad looks because we just wanted the reps? Or we're just not executing properly inside a, a decent scheme into good looks? Yeah, that's a, that is the key question, and this is the key takeaway. So we were running into favorable fronts, which is a staple of Dan Mullen. It's rare on this podcast you've ever heard us say that we're not doing that. We Miami, almost, we did a little bit, obviously, because we were, I think, concerned about we, a lot of things. We panicked, and, yeah. that, and that's when it's evident is when coaches panic, they do things they shouldn't do. And you know, in this game, we were clearly patient, which we kind of gave as the strength. We did not panic. We, we ran when we should have ran into favorable fronts, and we did not get a lot of reward for it. And the reason for that is relatively simple. We tend to miss at least one block per play, whether it's the O-line, the tight ends, the wide receivers struggled big time in this game to block. They had a very, very hard time blocking. Um, somebody's missing one. And all it takes is one. That's why you and I are doing this podcast. We love football because it's the ultimate team sport. You cannot have one guy miss one block or one assignment. It, it changes from a 10-yard play to a one-yard play. And that was consistently happening uh, against you know UT Martin. They also tackled well. And then secondarily, Allen, when you play really conservatively, the safeties have no real fear of you beating them on the pass. And so they're coming downhill so aggressively that if you don't clean out the first level really well, which our offensive line and tight ends are not quite capable of yet— those stages are filling empty gaps. And there truly is no one there to block them. That's not anybody's fault. That's where good run-pass balance helps. 
that's where we were a little bit stubborn in this game was we kind of knew they were flying downhill and we weren't really attempting to kill them for that. But regardless, as Dan would say in the film room, as the team is going to say this week, we've got to be able to win. When, when we're six on their five oftentimes and we're not winning and we're missing a guy entirely and they're executing a simple stunt or we're just whiffing on a, on a pool, it's very, very difficult to expect us to block well. And that is a major concern. I mean, at this point in time, I think it's very safe to say the coaching staff would be concerned with the, the level of blocking especially run blocking. Pass blocking has been has been fair. Run blocking is a concern. It was not good against Miami. Uh, it was it was a regressive step mainly because of the fronts that are going on here uh, against UT Martin. So that that's that's a problem. We struggled with regards to that. And the secondary area we struggled in the passing game is we really did not utilize the middle of the field. Now, this has been something I've talked about before with Dan Mullen offenses. He doesn't tend to love to throw over the middle anyway. We did however run about, you know what, 25 pass plays, 26 pass plays. We had about seven or eight dig routes or routes over the middle of the field, and they're almost always wide open. UT Martin and other schools are ex- really exclusively focusing on guarding the edge. We run a lot of high-low corner routes. We send one receiver five yards shallow, another one 15 yards. We try to two-on-one, you know, linebacker, corner, or a safety over there. And teams are ready for this. And it got to the point, Alan, where essentially later in Felipe Franks' game in the third quarter, I'm, I'm quite confident from watching the film many times in this particular play, they, they basically told Franks, like, throw this dig route to Grimes. You're going to throw it. Look at no one else. Throw the dig route. Because it really was wide open all game long. Right. And we've mentioned before in the Miami game that Freddie Swain is open all the time because he's primarily, along with Grimes, running these middle-breaking routes. Franks does not see them. So we're really struggling here to hit the middle of the field. And it looks to me like Franks is even uncomfortable throwing to the middle. When you see him throw, it's not something he wants to do. So we're going to keep an eye on this, run blocking across the board, and hitting the middle of the field. If I'm picking up on it, I can assure you everyone else is picking up on it. And UT Martin basically dared us to throw there, right. and we didn't do it. Well, you've seen, you mentioned his philosophical point. It's also Felipe's, you know, I guess preference is maybe not quite the right word, what he's comfortable with because there's less defenders along the sideline and you can miss wide or high and it's not going to hurt you. You miss wide or high over the middle of the field. Like you saw against Miami, it might be a tip ball and interception going the other way, but against the better teams, we're going to have to employ the entire field. And this is going to be the challenge for us moving forward because I think we have the receivers to be, a pass heavy team. If we cannot run block successfully, we're going to have to lean on our wide receivers. Can Franks do that? Yes and no. Uh, I don't think you want him to be throwing the ball 40 times a game. But if, if the better teams, LSU's the Georgia's of the world can stifle our run game using minimal players, like uh, it's going to be a challenge. Now I think we have the receivers to beat that. Do we have the quarterback that can do it? So hopefully with a quarterback like Felipe, you can take a lot of pressure off him by having a dominant run game so that he's throwing into better windows with less receivers. And that I think maybe part of this is Tennessee Martin dropping eight. That, Like you said, that puts a few more guys into, into those spaces where he's not expecting and he's uncomfortable. And then maybe the coaches are telling him, throw it anyway, it's open, trust us. And... I don't know if that's the way they have to coach Felipe. That's the way they have to coach Felipe. Obviously, there's a ceiling to that kind of strategy. Anything else you want to mention about where we struggled on the field? We're going to talk about kind of Frank. So we get the weekly full breakdown on okay. Frank since he's the most controversial person in, in the Gator sports arena. But before that, 
we love this little segment kind of play calling our way into points. Yeah, this and, is neat. And this is important to watch as a Florida fan because this is really what we do each and every week. And we did it early in this game. The touchdown to Cleveland when he's wide open is an excellent, excellent play call. So what UT Martin was doing was they were taking their safety, uh, their free safety. And if we motioned a guy across the formation, they would just bring him down. And he would basically attack that player. And this is a classic way to kind of shift, you know, an unbalanced formation. They would alternate alternate that sometimes. And what we caught on to was in a certain formation we had, if we brought a guy across the field, then he would always come down. And that would leave their corner kind of like basically looking into the backfield to see if a running back was coming out, if he's going to guard the, the go route. And the long story short is the adjustment we made to get him on that play was we actually faked the handoff to the receiver which held that safety. He just stood still. And it also held the corner, who was also looking at the running back coming out of the backfield and Cleveland runs right by him. And that was entirely a play call based upon three or four looks we had already seen. And so that's something Dan Mullen is very, very good at. And again, it's an easy layup touchdown for Felipe Franks. And we, one of the things we talk about on the show a lot, Alan, is Franks' numbers a lot of times look so good because Dan Mullen is walking him into those play calls. And that's great. I'm not trying to dog Franks with that. I'm trying to more celebrate the play caller. That's Indeed. a play caller's touchdown. And, and it's great. You see that each and every week, and it's something we really, really rely on. Alan, let's talk about Frank's 25 of 27 for 270 and two touchdowns. That's a fantastic stat line. Were you impressed? I'm going to say no. They did. There weren't any real difficult throws. There, there weren't bad throws either. I wasn't unimpressed, but the degree of difficulty was not high whether it was the competition or the types of throws he was throwing. And, and a couple of times his throws were, they were completions, but they weren't the right kind of completions. Here's what I mean by that. If a receiver is making his break and you hit him in stride, the way the play design is he might run for another 15 yards. You slow him up or he's got to reach behind. And, you know, sometimes this can happen. You're not going to make every perfect throw. But into the kind of looks that they were giving us with, when he was making those completions or several that should have gone for a lot more. He didn't have a bad game. He had a fine game. Um, again, we were fairly conservative. We weren't asking him to do really crazy stuff. So in that sense, after last week, him throwing an inexplicable interception, you know, it, I guess being unimpressed, <laughs> uh, what do I want to say him not being unimpressive is impressive if you want to use the, that vocabulary, I wasn't discouraged or encouraged by his play. And I guess we'll take that at this point. So I don't know. It's, it's hard to say too much about this game. I don't want to go too heavy one way or the other because it's Tennessee Martin. What about you? Yeah. Two reminders. One last year, Frank's threw for five touchdowns before we played Kentucky against an overmatched opponent. And then, then we lost. Right. So you can't do that. Two, when you're evaluating quarterback, you have to look at how they did it. And I think what you said is key. The takeaway for me for Franks can be summed up in this one sentence. He completed a lot of passes, had an extremely great passer efficiency rating. I think it's the highest in Florida history. Right. But he so oftentimes did not take the best pass available to him. And he became like a check down Charlie, right? Every pass became a throw to the sideline, throw to the backfield, backwards pass when there were better options available. So in a certain sense, Alan, you actually don't want to have like a 95% completion percentage as a quarterback because it almost certainly means you're not throwing risky enough throws. You really got to be somewhere between the low 70s to mid 70s for like a perfect game. And in fact, the formula accounts for this. It accounts for those kind of passes. So if you're looking at Frank's progressing and you're thinking, wow, what a great stat line. He's completing all these passes. 
the reality was he he's not hitting the throws a quarterback should be hitting at this level, which then raises the question that you should be asking yourself always, each and every week, ask yourself this question. Can we beat LSU? Can we beat Georgia? Can we beat Alabama? Because you're going to have to beat two or three of those to basically win the SEC. And that's what you should be looking at. Can these throws beat those teams? And that's what we're looking at here on the podcast. So keep that in mind when we're kind of talking about progression. Uh, the Van Jefferson TD was was one of the nicer ones by Franks and illustrates both his his goodness and sort of his, his curse, if you will. He actually read left to right. He sees Van. However, he then waits. This is Franks' main problem. He waits until Van is so obviously open to then throw him a really nice pass. Right. When in reality, that pass could have been thrown a full second earlier. Van's already running full speed. The safety tips are completely turned around. He's, he's dead. He's completely dead. Put the ball into the grass. Let him go to it. But that's not where Franks is yet. So this concept of ball timing, of when you release the football as a quarterback, is what separates a pro from a college guy. And so separates a good college guy from Franks right now. Is He's almost always late with when he throws the ball because he doesn't anticipate throwing to a window, which, Allen is why he does not like to throw to the middle of the field. Those are window throws. Those are timing throws. You have to be able to hit those throws on time. If Danny Warfel were on this podcast right now, and we certainly should bring him on one time to talk about this, when you throw the ball is everything as a quarterback as to whether that window is open or closed. And I think for Franks, there's a level there that he's not quite comfortable with. And you saw this on display all game long. He'd move from his first read straight to his check down. He'd move from his first read to his second for a second and then drop to the check down. Uh, there were often better plays available. But most curiously, two things stand out to me still. His ball placement on the short routes is continually poor. Screens running back flare routes. There's, it's so poor that it really costs us any chance of gaining positive yards on this. And this should be something he's gotten so much practice on, he needs to improve it. And then secondly, we talked about this last week, or two weeks ago, Alan. He doesn't like to throw into the numbers. If we have trips on one side or four receivers on one side, he's not comfortable. At the end of the first half, we ran the same exact play twice in a row. And the first time we had a little screen that was wide open with three receivers blocking two of their guys, and he throws into the one-on-one Van Jefferson slant route which I can assure you the coaches did not approve of because they ran the same play again, this time to Malik Davis. And yet again, it was wide open. And Malik Davis actually jumps up in the air and kind of puts his hand on his helmet, which is typically indicative that like this was a play they called. And yet Franks again goes to the empty side or the side where there's just one receiver. And that all makes sense to me. This goes to why, Allen he's not comfortable throwing to the middle. He's not comfortable throwing into numbers. I believe the game is moving very quickly for him when there's a lot of bodies there and he does not have a good feel. The computer in his head is not computing quickly or accurately what coverage are they in, who's going to be open. And so it's just a lot of bodies in a confined space. Right, That's hard. It is hard. And that's what's really hurting us because that is a key to good college quarterbacking is being able to get your pre-snap read, accurately convey what the defense is doing, and then confidently know where to deliver the ball. And that's not where we are, which is why I think you see so many of these east-west routes, these sort of high-low sideline reads. Is like you mentioned, it's safe. And it's also why you see Felipe take his eyes off downfield and start running whenever he feels that's a good option because he's not comfortable when the windows get tighter. And with his arm, I certainly wish he was because he has the arm to make any throw he wants. He's got a Dan Marino-like arm, yet he doesn't have the gunslinger mentality. And, and, and part of that is a blessing, Alan, like you mentioned. He's not going to turn the ball over. It fits in the Dan Mullen scheme. But it's something to watch each and every week because so far, I'm not seeing the evidence that leads me to believe that this is going to be a guy who can beat enough of the premier teams. He can't just beat one. He's got to beat two of the three. Well, if you're looking for some encouraging signs, it's that 
often he does see it, but he doesn't always trust it. I'll take us back to the play um, against Miami, or we it was, would have been a throwback to Kyle Pitts running into the corner of the end zone, where it looks on if you don't see the Kyle Pitts route, it just looks like we roll out and have a stupid route and throw it out of bounds. We talked about it a lot last week. He looks at it, he sees it, and he catches a glimpse of a defensive lineman, it looks like, and he's like, I don't trust it. I don't know what's on the other. I didn't get a full look. I didn't get to stand there for a while and wait till he runs open. The Van Jefferson play. He sees it. He waits till he has full clarity. And you can't have you're not gonna have time for that when George is blitzing you. And so that's where we're at with him. If I'm encouraged, is that on some of these plays he does see it. Sometimes he doesn't see it, but he does see it. Sometimes we gotta get him to trust it. Now, again, there'll, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve as he starts to trust it, and but they've tricked him. Then he trusts his bad information. So we're in the middle of that somewhere. Can he get there fast enough? And that would be before he leaves UF. I don't know. Um, but at least there's a little bit there, like you said. Let's talk about the backups. I have just yeah. one comment on Trask, but I'm looking forward to hearing yours. Trask gets the ball out on time. If you, if you want to look at what it looks like for a quarterback to get the ball out on time, now he had a, he had a pass that should have been picked, right? No quarterback's right. perfect, but on the show we give you the analysis of what we see. Trask ball timing is excellent. Well, he came into that first play. That's kind of a weird spot to put someone in on third down in the middle of a drive. Obviously, it's the beginning of a quarter, so they had time to prep him, but that was a bullet right on time, as you said. Perfect read. And what I often say on film with Franks, and I'll get in this debate with some of our friends in the, on the text thread, is you oftentimes cannot tell who Franks is actually reading, which is very weird. I could watch the film 20 times, and I promise you, you cannot tell what he's looking at because it's weird. It doesn't make sense. His eyes don't make sense. He often looks at open receivers, doesn't throw it. I'm not sure what he's seeing or not seeing. With Trask, it's much more normal. You look, and you're like, he's absolutely reading that corner. And then he waits, and the corner declares where he's going. He makes the throw you expect. That's how you can tell a guy's reading the field well. Trask is very is very good at that. I think that's where he really excels, and the ball comes out on time. Um, obviously, there's a million things we've never got to see with Trask because he has well, he, t- he doesn't deal great with pressure or if things break down or the defense gives him a look he's not expecting. Correct, and we've never got to see the guy play. I think I illustrate this to say it surprises me that Trask hasn't attempted to play somewhere. Because he has the look of a guy who should go play somewhere and see if he can do it. He's been a backup his whole life. That's my main comment on Trask. The guy does not look like Luke Del Rio, who is like just a guy that's not really talented enough to be at that level, but is smart and gets it. He's a big, strong guy. He's got a good arm. He got to go play somewhere. That's my main thought on Trask. Whenever he gets a shot here at Florida, I guess he'll just be content that it wasn't his thing. But he has good instincts. Yeah, he's interesting. This was... uh... We're going to get to this in a second here, but um, let's talk about Emory before I ask you this question that's on the top of my brain here. I know what you're going to say, that I don't, you don't want to make too many judgments here. I did not like the way he looked. And again, we'll contextualize this. He's playing with not the ones, but there's enough talent on that field versus the relative talent of Tennessee Martin. He's looked better in other spots. But I wasn't like, man, get Emory out on the field some more. Now, he's more sudden. When he ran that QB draw, he's quicker than Franks, obviously. I didn't love what I saw out of him. Both his, We talk about ball placement. Not a lot of great ball placement there. 
looked a little jittery. I think he's fumbled a snap every time he's been in a game. So I don't know if that's a mental thing, if that's the jitters, and maybe if he's a starter, that would be gone by the first game. We wouldn't see it again. Didn't love what I see. It's not. I didn't leave this game going, what are the coaches doing? Why aren't they playing Emory Jones? Yeah, that's definitely not. And if anyone says that, they didn't they didn't watch the game, right? But again, you can't base it on that. That's why you don't want to make too many judgments. But quarterback wise, we can. So we made a big judgment on Trask watching his eight plays. Good pocket presence, good vision downfield, not afraid to throw the ball. Decisive reading is making reads. Also panics, and when he panics, he's throwing the ball because he's more of a gunslinger. Emery, when he panics, he's running the ball, which is more of a Dan Mullen kind of guy. And I think if Emery were to come into the game, you would see the offense shift quite a bit. We kind of run this very conservative spread option offense where we run Franks just enough times and kind of run some deep throws because people are worried about it. With Emery, become a much more traditional Dan Mullen offense, a lot more running, a lot of uh, you know kind of RPO passing-based concepts because I think Emery would do well at that. But if you're just watching him as a quarterback, that was a train wreck of a performance from pocket presence to sliding to eyes downfield to risk-taking. I mean... He would have graded out very poorly. Not encouraging. You still could look poised back there, even if you're running with the threes, like you said, Alan. You don't want to take too much away from it because who knows what was going on. But as a thrower in the pocket, bad would be the would be the assessment there. That was not a lot to like about how he looked in that pocket. Were you surprised that Trask came out first? Yes, because we've been led to believe that Emery was the backup, but... To me, although Emery did get a couple of weird snaps there, though, right? He, Early he in came quarter, in for like a like specific funky package, little yeah. package. But again, if I'm just watching quarterback play, and I'm way biased, I'll be the first to say, I cannot say this being unbiased. I'm way biased towards a guy who can throw competently, which I've said on the podcast many times. Trask is getting the nod for me from consistently what I've seen from him. I'd give him a shot over Emery. Uh, you know, again, if you're more the running style, you go to Emery. But I guess. That could mean something. I mean, Trask got more time. He got more time with more significant players. It certainly seemed like Emery was with the threes, did it not? Yeah, and so that that might point us to a specific strategy. A lot of times with backup quarterbacks, you would change things depending on what you're going to do. So maybe if we see Franks go out of the game, his helmet comes off, he gets hurt, that you would see Trask play out. Now, if if we had a Nick Foles type situation where Franks broke his clavicle, maybe you would see Emory Jones actually move into the starter job and we're going to make major changes to what we're doing. I think probably Trask fits in a little bit more into the game plan that they would have already put into place, the plays that they'd already been practicing. So maybe that's a little bit of that. I, in, a, in a situation where Franks is no longer available for a significant amount of time, I'd be interested to see what the coaches did then. Yeah, that's a great point. That's actually a really accurate and astute point that I think is probably true. Trask and Franks are very similar. Emery is totally different. All right, defense. We're going to spend not a lot of time here. It was obviously a rather dominating performance. UT Martin's game plan, we talked about their offensive line, Allen, and they were indeed impressive. That was a good offensive line for a school of that level. They did not blow assignments. We did get five sacks, but in all reality, they played don't turn the ball over, play smart, keep the game within reach, which they were largely successful in doing. I think they're probably Eat very the pleased clock. with what was going on with that. 
And they kept, you know, turnover free for the most part. So good job by them. Our game plan was real simple, Alan. It was to play a ton of guys. I mean, right from the beginning, we were throwing everybody and anybody with a jersey on in the game, which I love. I think that shows a confidence as a coordinator that you trust your guys. You're not saying, well, wait until we're up three scores. It's three nothing and you're throwing everyone in already. And I, I yeah, personally I love loved that. I loved it. I thought that was awesome. I think that builds recruiting momentum. I thought that was fantastic. And I know some guys stuck out to you, Alan. Yeah, there's a lot of guys, I think, who flashed. A lot of our younger guys, um, we'll get to maybe some of these um, young corners. But let me just say that. Let me double down what you said. The conservative football coach goes, I'm going to, I got to protect these younger guys, or I've got to, the game is still in doubt. What happens? You know, but if these guys have to play, it's going to be live action. If they're having to go in, it's going to be second and 17 or something like that. Who knows what might be going on during an actual big game? Throw them out there a ton in these types of moments because that's what those are the type of reps they actually need, not just in garbage time. So I love playing a ton of guys. So the three young corners, three freshman corners, number 25, Chester Kimbrough, who was actually the first corner out there, which I don't know if that was just a rotational thing or, you know, on his side of the field or whatever they were thinking about that. But definitely the lowest rate of these three guys that we'll talk about, Kair Elam. We always talk about Matt Elam's nephew. You'll probably hear that a ton about him. He was number five. And then number 23, Jaden Hill. All three of these guys are fairly highly rated. Kair Elam was the big dog coming in, the biggest pedigree. They all looked legit. Even though Chester's a small dude, he plays with some spunk and energy, which I know you like. I was pleased with all those guys, especially considering what happened in the game that C.J. Henderson went down. Didn't look like the moment was too big for them or the talent gap was too big or the size gap. Kyrie Elam's a big dude. He looks like he's ready to play in the SEC as a true freshman. Uh, of course, he had the one interception in the game, the one turnover. So pleased by them. I, I think you saw some linebackers. You saw some, you know, a lot of our defensive linemen already play. But everybody who got out there, um, whether it was Bogle, Diabate, those guys looked like they knew what they were doing. You could plug them in, and they weren't going to embarrass themselves. Yeah, I think the biggest difference is what you mentioned, the the speed and athleticism of our twos and threes on defense this year. And we're still not at a full cupboard yet, like we talked no. about. We're not even where we should be for a program like Florida. But you can notice the improvement. And I did enjoy Chester Kimbrough's energy flying around. He played for for Warren Eaton or Warren Easton on uh, New Orleans. And I love New Orleans guys. They're great in the flag football community. They tend to be super energetic, very athletic. Uh, and so he played a lot of high-level competitive football games. And you can tell. I mean, this guy's played in state championship games, state semifinal games against a bunch of guys going to LSU, Bama, etc. The moment was definitely not too big for him. A lot of energy. I think those kind of guys are nice. He's a three-star, definitely the least heralded one. I'm not sure how much we like him yet, but like you mentioned, you can kind of see the range of like an Elam who's like a an NFL kind of body, NFL bloodlines, versus a, a Chester who's like really quick. He's a very quick dude. Could become like a who knows what kind of guy, maybe, maybe even nickel guy in the road. I don't know. And then Jaden Hill, who looks nice, runs well, moves well, thought he had a few nice plays in the game. But the freshmen are, are at, you know, acquitting themselves to the game rather nicely here, Alan. Yeah, and I— it was nice to see, see that, that they weren't getting picked on. That those guys came in the game and, you know, my heart didn't sink, you know, a la CJ McWilliams. So let's talk about your boy, Sean Davis. This is a little bit successful. 
he popped watching the game live and again on the rewatch. I mean, we still don't know about coach's preference decision because Jalen Taylor hurt, Brad Stewart still suspended. So, of course, they had to start him. But I think he's, at least in my eyes, made a move that he's clearly our best safety in most facets of the game, even though he's a little bit undersized. Talk about him. Yeah, that that's it. I mean, we we you know this is what's fun. Hopefully, for you all listening to this podcast, is a lot of times we're wrong because we're opinionated, right? But when we're right, we tend to be right ahead of time, and I think a lot of that comes from actually analyzing the games. And this is one with Sean Davis. I think we saw that show up. We said he needed to start. He, he's clearly our best safety. He did nothing to disprove that. I mean, he just seems to be getting better and better and better with every game. Allen is very confident where he's lining up, where he's coming. He's a sure, sure tackler. He comes downhill with confidence, which you have to as a safety. If you come down flat-footed or tentative, you're going to get beat. Yeah, sure tackler. I You can tell that the corners feel confident with him. Interesting. You can see it. When you look on the field, you look on film, when they know he's there, they trust him. And that's huge on the back end for our, our future playing because, again, we really haven't had a safety we can trust for several years now, and this, this unit's been struggling. Our tackling was obviously much better. Hard to gauge what was going on. There weren't, they didn't have athletes in space against us here. This Kentucky game will tell a lot, obviously, about how well we tackle. And we had five sacks. I think their game plan was to totally go away from us. Their quarterback, actually rather elusive, escaped at least three or four more. Uh, so we're at 15 for the year, which is an absurd start <laughs> sack-wise to yes. the year. And then, Alan, where we struggled, I'm going to leave out the first one. Steiner should not play in any kind of important game. He's put enough on film now where he can't tackle. He has no idea where he is in the field. Even against UT Martin, big time struggles on the tape. The coaches by now have got to know it. I'm not sure what their plan is going to be for him. I know they were high on him as a hitter. I have seen nothing out of him other than he's a liability on film. And and that's just the harsh reality of what we're seeing. But we gotta we gotta hope that he doesn't see the field at this point. He's gonna need more development off the field because you can't you can't trust him. He's absolutely our weakest defender uh when we're rolling out of the eleven out there. Yeah, I'm most concerned with him. He takes it tends to take bad angles in pursuit, whether it's a ball carrier or a receiver over the top. And that's the fundamental safety play. If you can't do that, I don't know what. It doesn't matter what else you do well. I guess I'll say that. Uh, Okay, only one turnover in this game. Does that concern you at all? No, we've talked about this in the podcast before. When you get the reputation of having an elite sort of aggressive attacking mindset, teams like UT Martin are going to go away from you. Uh, We generated a ton of turnovers against Miami, just didn't fall on them. I expect that to continue. One thing to keep close note of, though, when you have a fearsome pass rush like this, teams are going to attempt to keep the game close so that you don't get ahead of them, and then you're really in trouble. If, right. if we know you're passing, you are dead. That's one reason why we're imploring our offense to kind of produce a little bit here, because we could be special. It doesn't worry me right now. Again, I think these games are the way they are. It, it will concern me if time goes on down the road, but it doesn't make sense that it would. I think this team will generate turnovers. Uh, I think you know two games through the season, we're way behind on those, but I think that will turn around. Agree. Something to, as you said, keep an eye on. Obviously, the fumble luck is crazy from the first game that we technically produced a lot of fumbles, and who gets them is totally random, the data would say. Okay, let's talk about special teams. Fine. Good. Anything to note here? Yeah, this is a top unit on special teams. Now, we're missing a great punt return, man. But like what we said, hopefully you can take to the bank. 
Freddie Swain is not going to drop the ball. And that's clearly Dan Mullen's philosophy. He's assuming, I don't really care. I just want to make sure when they're punting the ball that we get the ball. And that's the plan, and he's great at that. And I think outside of that, I think you know McPherson, I think, is probably the best kicker in college football that no one knows about because we don't kick very often. And uh, I think Tommy Townsend's fantastic. I continue to think the guy's an outstanding punter. Right. Uh, all of our special team units are really, really good. Uh, I, I, I think this is going to be a plus for us in close games. All right. Let's move on to coaching corner. Not a lot of big moments or weird decisions this game. But the beginning of the game, and this is an interesting philosophical point, we decided to kick a field goal. It was fourth and two or fourth and three maybe on that first drive. What did you think about that call? I was shocked, befuddled, mystified. I don't know. On the play before, we had pits open on a flat route. We also could have handed the ball off to P. Ryan who walked in the end zone. We could have done 45 different things. It seems like you set the tone in the wrong way in your own stadium against an overmatched opponent to like yield and kick a field goal. I would like to hear the rationale behind why they did that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, interesting. It's, it's not a problem. If you don't get it, fine. Your top-ranked defense comes out and stops them, and you get the ball back, and whatever. It's not even an issue. It was curious. I'm not going to like labor the point here, but it was a curious move. Dan goes for fourth downs actually frequently. A lot. Yeah. So I wonder if this is a beginning of the game type of thing or or the positioning of the field because we weren't quite – you weren't inside the 10-yard line or anything like that. And obviously that pits play, I mean, he he got sniped. You know, he falls over inexplicably. We should have walked into a first down at least. But, you know, in a bigger kind of game, let's say we're playing LSU and we're in that spot, I say kick the field goal. I want to put the points on the board. And I am – captain aggressive when it comes to being in the red zone or I, if it's fourth and short, I think it was just long enough. It was, I think closer to fourth and three, we were not running the ball. Well, maybe didn't feel like he had a play ready to go. I, I'm okay with that. And I'm the one who's normally hyper aggressive there. So I don't know that maybe that's weird. And that point in the game at that place on the field, I didn't hate kicking the field goal. Although it's a kind of a downer and it definitely slows your momentum. I, I don't know. There there didn't seem to be enough upside that I would want to say, oh, for sure you should have gone for it. Fair enough. I feel like overmatched opponent, you're at home, you're in the swamp. Sure. The land of Steve Spurrier. If you would have gone for it, I would have been totally fine with it. I don't. I don't hate it on there. Yeah, against a better opponent, that's that's a different question for a lot of you know. Let's say well, it's let's very situational. Well, yeah, let's say let's like. put this against LSU. The exact same. They punt. We move the ball. We have a weird play in third down. We're on the road, maybe. Do you kick the field goal there? I think it depends on what I've seen so far. Okay. So at that point in time on filming the game, we had receivers running open. They were they there were formations we could have given them. I think our conversion rate had to be like 75-80%. I would take it. Okay. If it's a different situation in the game, or if we've maybe flukily gotten to fourth and two and LSU's defense looks good or the matchup is bad, or I don't like any kind of formation I have to get it, then I'm taking the points for sure. So I think it's not always, I think what we're both saying is this is not concrete. You don't always go for it on fourth and two in the 25, even if some analytics would say so. Um, and I'm a huge analytics person. I do think you have to look at game flow momentum. Most of the time, I think it's probably wise to go for a fourth and short, especially if you're a competent coordinator, you trust certain pieces on your team. But in this case, overmatched opponent, just go for it. Well, I think it. Dan likes to run it. it in these situations, and we weren't running the ball well. And maybe it was just a little too far for Felipe, you know, QB power. We'll see. Okay, other bright spots. Let's mention a guy who 
was almost like a phantom to this team because he's played so little and talked about so much. Jacob Copeland, our highest-rated recruit from two years ago, looked good. Got in the game, played a lot of those snaps Tony would have gotten. Looked sudden, decisive, strong. I liked what I saw out of him. I loved it. This should be the Copeland coming out party because Tony's going to be out for a few weeks. Copeland should get his carries and his touches unless they go away from that game plan. And I think in this game, he proved he needs to be getting some of those touches. He did a fair job blocking as well. He's a strong guy. Blocking is more of an art when you're strong enough than than it is just a pure skill. He'll pick that up. Uh, But I thought he looked good throughout the game. I thought he gave really, really good effort. And I think, unlike Tony, who's kind of like a, a jitterbug or a waterbug back there, Copeland's more like Percy. He's a one cut and go, strong, physical, fast guy. I thought he looked really nice, and, I, and I'm sure he feels great. I think he's really excited about his his you know debut and touchdown in the swamp. It's been a long time coming for him. It's been a weird sort of flash and then under the radar kind of guy. Now back on the radar, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. And he's going to be the guy next year, I think. With however many people are going to leave, will remains to be seen, but we're going to need him. A lot next year. So even if we don't need him, he's kind of a luxury this year. We've got to get him ready. So good to see him start to break out. Like we we mentioned, you know, other bright steps, bright spots. A lot of freshmen played in this game, and they played well. Nobody other than maybe Steiner looked lost or bad. We mentioned Pitts blocking <laughs> needs to improve. Uh, you don't want people looking bad in this kind of game. Anything else that you would mention? I just want to ask you one snapshot question. Sure. Snap reaction. Are you more or less confident about the Gators moving forward? Just instant reaction. Less. I think if you push me, I would say the same. Not drastically so. No, it's a small. I think we've evaluated it about where we're still in the range we said we are. But I think if you really push me on it, my gut reaction is like less. I'm I'm less optimistic. It's hard. Again, in this game, it's almost a, a meaningless data point. We've had these games against teams where you you do put the screws to them you blow them out i don't know it i don't if it's less confident it's by 0.3 percentage points but i i think the larger takeaway maybe is you asking me that i didn't leave this game feeling more confident so about the same but if pressed i can't say about the same i'll say slightly less i agree all right walk us through some national games our fans are either feeling Really Real bad. quick, before we get to that, let me ask you this. Let me throw one at you. Bigger loss for this team, C.J. Henderson or Kadarius Tony? Curveball. I thought this was coming later. You got me. I like that. Uh, I think that's an easy one for me. I think Tony is 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 much more replaceable than Henderson because of the depth. Now, if you say flip it around and say our corner depth becomes our receiver depth, then I'm going to answer it the reverse way. Okay. But the reality is, although I like our freshmen behind him, I think if you're really playing competitive games and CJ was really hurt, I think you probably move Trey Dean to corner. Maybe they don't, but I think they'd consider it. Depends on how high they are in the true freshman. Whereas a receiver, it's really plug and play. Like, I mean, Tony only touches the ball maybe six times a game at the absolute most. That's like JT's dream, right? It's like two to three to four. He's only on the field for half the snaps on offense at best. That's like a best usage rate. Whereas CJ's in the field every single play. So to me, it's a no-brainer. CJ's you know one of the best corners, if not the best corner, along with Marco Wilson in college football. Tony is a guy that's just a college football player who's quick and nice and fun. There's a big, big difference between those two guys, in my opinion. So sure, for me, I would bigger agree. losses, Anderson. Oh, I 100% agree. I think Tony is f- 
fun. He's electric. People love to have him out there. I love that we have him on the team. He's a wrinkle. You don't know what he's going to do. You have to account for him because he could break any play for a touchdown. You saw it against Miami. But for our depth, and we're incredibly deep at receiver, we shouldn't miss his production. Maybe we miss his, I don't know, almost the chaos that he introduces into the game. You saw it in a bad way where he ran like 70 yards to get one yard. But losing Henderson, we talked about the beginning of the year, is potentially catastrophic if those freshmen aren't ready. And the quicker he gets back, the better. I don't know if we'll feel it against Kentucky. We could. We'll talk about that. But potentially huge loss. Okay. And mild ankle sprain with him. Yes. So I think we don't push him, and hopefully, right, he comes back soon and all is well. But yes, if we was if he was gone for the season, it's a reorientation of the defense. Agreed. All right, let's talk about the national game. Some fun ones. This, the headliner for me. Wow, LSU forty five putting up forty five points versus Texas. So 45-38. We talked about both these coaches in our kind of hold, keep, you know, mm-hmm. segment. And obviously this game lived up to the hype. This is a game where I think if you're a fan of Texas and Tom Herman, you're feeling good about yourself. If you're an LSU fan, you are beside yourself. You have waited your entire football fan life to watch an offense that looks like a modern-day football offense. And you're giddy. You're just be beside yourself with joy. You threw for 400-plus yards on the road. Now, granted, it's Texas, the Big 12. Everyone throws for lots of yards. But for LSU to be throwing the ball on third and 17 in the biggest moment of the game and converting that was incredible. is unreal. So I know those fans are beside themselves. It's clear that the Ed Orgeron experiment, and I can't even believe I'm about to say this, is absolutely working with these all-star coordinators. He obviously has some magical glue that these people like to work with and that he influences. Look, the guy is tremendously humble. He's a head coach in the SEC at LSU. And after the game, Alan, all he did was give credit to everyone else. And it was not fake. Hey, you know what? Joe Brady did this in the passing game. Hey, you know what? Steve Ensmeyer did this. Hey, those guys did this in the offseason. He did not say, I directed this. I hired those guys. He was very generously saying, these were the guys that built this around me. And I'm sort of the figurehead. And I'm okay with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I applaud him for doing so because he's absolutely fulfilling a role on that team. And that, that team is exciting. And, I mean, people are amped about them right now. And you you cannot give credit to LSU without giving credit to Ed O. And and, and on this very podcast, I said he wouldn't make it. And I'm wrong. I stand corrected. What they're building there is absolutely solid. This does not mean they won a national title, Alan, but the takeaway is they're different. For once, LSU on offense is actually different. And maybe the concern is this all-world defense they had got lit up. Well, Texas is very nice on offense. I think you could see that. Um just from their construction and from their talent. And this was, they were doing this without any real running back depth at all. He much chronicled LSU looked really great, really great. This is a great moment for them. You know, Joe Brady's not going to be around LSU for very long. If they keep putting up points, he's going to get snatched up by somebody quick after this season. Uh, we'll talk a lot about LSU in the coming weeks here. I think let's, let's keep moving. Texas A&M 10, Number one, Clemson 24, Texas A&M, backdoor cover there. They scored with almost no time left. Clemson dominated this game. Kellen Mond looked over his head. This is, I guess, feels like this is every week with him. He's like high or low, very low this week. I don't know. What's your takeaway from this game? My takeaway is how good Jimbo Fisher is. Because if you flip Trevor Lawrence and Kellen Mond, does Clemson still win? 
I don't know. Are you are you buying into the hype that Trevor Lawrence looks kind of mediocre for two no. weeks? No, I mean he does, but that's okay. I'm literally saying Kellen Mond was a tr- a dumpster fire train wreck. Like that game could have been close. And Texas A&M does not have the talent Clemson does right now. They do not. They will. They're catching up. They don't. I think this this game to me just hails Jimbo's greatness, which is weird to say that because they got beat like a drum. But it's not his fault right now in year two of his tenure that Kellen Mond is horrifically bad. I mean, he's missing open receivers. It's also well chronicled on this podcast, Alan, how much I love that offense. And you that offense that was offense. fantastic. Clemson is a very hard team to execute on. And consistently, A&M had open receivers well, does throughout it not, the game. Does but he not bear some responsibility for getting his quarterback to... He does. I think he has to have a better guy. I think he knows that. I think now, if, if we're doing an A&M podcast, the question is, what does Jimbo do right now? Because to me, Kellen Mond's put enough on tape that that dude can't do it. Well, who else do you have on the roster? I don't know. And I don't know either because I don't know about A&M, but I just know it's interesting. So Clemson, I think, continues to look a little bit more mortal. I mean, A&M sort of gave him a million chances to annihilate them, and they didn't. They did, convincing. Clemson's very, very good. But they're not looking like, I think, the team people thought they were going to look like thus far into the season. Interesting. All right. Army 21, number 7, Michigan 24, double overtime. Army definitely covered the spread and more. Wow, this is a crazy, crazy game. Army actually had a chance maybe to put Michigan away where they were second and goal on the one-foot line. Fall started their way into an interception. <laughs> Excuse me, crazy game, though. That was crazy. When I watched that happen live, I was thinking, no, why did you call a pass on third down? Just kick the field goal. Michigan's offense was beyond anemic. You're ball controlling them to death. Go up two scores. And I'm sure that's what Army's coach is thinking right now. Is That's the that's the coaching corner gaffe right there. But heroic game by Army. So many questions about Harbaugh right now. They just look dead and lifeless. They can't figure out the offense. Nothing they do. All the changes they've made don't work. They're the same ho-hum, underachieving team. Just a lot of questions in Ann Arbor right now. No good answers to those questions, but it looks like it's going to be Ohio State's year yet again, which I don't I don't know. Year five of the Harbaugh experience here is, I mean, what do you do now? Well, let me give one caveat to this. That Army took, I think, Oklahoma, I think it was to overtime. Either it was overtime or right to the end of the game, and then Oklahoma goes on to make the playoff. So I don't want to overact too strongly to a weird Army game. But Michigan did not look good, that's for sure. And all of the hype about Josh Gaddis, the new offensive coordinator, like you said, it seems to be falling flat right now. Man, a lot of people's preseason darling, number 22 Syracuse, gets flattened by your Terps. It's 20-63. I'm happy about this game, obviously. My whole family is from Maryland. My cousin went there. My dad went there. My uncle went there. I grew up really kind of like a pseudo-Maryland fan. This was a destruction. I have never gotten more texts from my dad or my family about Maryland football. Crazy. And Maryland's been decent before under the fridge, but sort of the excitement that is being built right now with Maryland. I mean, this was a absolute annihilation. So you beat Howard 79 nothing in Which week is, one. Which is, you know, whatever. Fine, they're a high school team. But then in week two, you beat a ranked Syracuse team that we're talking about the job that Dino Babers has done there, and you just destroy them at home. Now, you don't want to get too high on this result, but this is no joke. This is one of the largest wins of an unranked team over a ranked team ever in college football history. Wow. I mean, it was incredible. So now if you're a Maryland fan, you got Temple this week who beat you last year, and then you have Penn State. That game could be wildly fun. 
but exciting. Keep your eye on Maryland. Allen, this is not a fluke. They've got Josh Jackson, the Virginia Tech quarterback transfer. They run a multiple, wide-open, very smart offense. It's a mixture of air raid and pro style. Great concepts. Guys are wide open. I'm looking forward to seeing what this team can do beyond my Maryland ties. They are just, I think they're exciting more than just the average college football fan. Well, also holding fun. holding Syracuse to 20 points was, I think, a good you know, result from their defense as well. Okay, the heartbreaker of the day. University of Louisiana Monroe, 44. FSU, 45. ULM misses an extra point to tie the game into overtime. Send the game into, no, tie the game up in overtime. I'm so jumbled because I'm heartbroken about this. Crazy. FSU was up big, allowed them another team again in the second half to come back. I mean, this, we were like, okay, ULM's going to win. It's going to be 0-2. FSU pulls out a win, but I don't know. Do you feel any better pulling out a win like this? No, I don't. Florida State fans, it's weird. Like, they just, they sort of don't really care. Are they in like, denial or are they just I apathetic? Don't, some care. I can't tell. If you're a Florida State fan and you listen to this podcast, which there are some of you I know, you're married to Florida fans or whatever, please write me and explain to me what your feelings are like because I, there are some fans that are certainly very upset from what I can tell. But this is not like what would be happening at Texas or Florida or LSU or Alabama. Like, there's a level of calm that is blowing my mind because they are unbelievably bad. I mean, I think at this point in time, Alan, it's safe to say this is the worst coaching hire in the modern era. The level of utility they are hitting here, receivers are lining up backwards on trick plays. <laughs> oh, we got a lot of there. I mean, there's so many things we could do. I just, they should have lost this game. But, Alan, the one question I have is why are these schools not going for two when they're the underdog this and they are shredding the opponent's defense? FSU was gassed. They just walked into the end zone. You have a chance on the road. And this is, again, you know the overtime structure. You go, one team goes first, the other team goes second. If you're tied, then you go first and they go second. You lose the advantage. You have them. You have to go for two right there. You have to. Not just because they missed the extra point. I don't, I don't, obviously that's terrible, but you have to go for two. That killed me. I was screaming at the TV. You have to be better mathematically than 50% at that point in time to win the game, judging by what you just said. A, it's an outright shot to win, which gives you leverage advantage. B, Florida State was dead. You literally walked into the end zone. Like, this is your moment to strike. This is your moment to write history, and you kick the extra point, which forces another overtime where, again, you're playing against superior athletes, they're still at home. That's not when you push it to the next level. No. You take your shot. But a lot of these schools have not been taking their shot. We talked about it with uh, Northern Iowa against Iowa State. The same thing. So surprising there, but unfortunate. Or maybe fortunate. I don't know what Florida State's going to do with Wade Taggart. We talked about it. It's so clear he should be fired. His bout's so large. They're in They're in debt. I don't know what's going on over there. It is one of the fastest like fallouts of a major program I've seen in quite some time. Okay, a guy... Man, this is a this is an interesting result. Nebraska, number twenty four, Nebraska thirty one, Colorado thirty four. Nebraska was in control of this game and let it slip out of their fingers. This is we said previously. If Scott Frost is on his way up, this is a game he needs to win, and he didn't. Now, this doesn't mean we fire him, obviously, but definitely a weird data point for them. Yeah, Scott Frost said it was the most painful loss he's ever been associated with. Wow. And I think that's partly, he's aware, he's a very self-aware coach. I think he's aware of the same thing we're aware of. Like, that's a bad, bad, bad look, bad loss, rival, historic rival, have to get past them there. You should be trending in a different direction, and they blew that game. 
And uh, the king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal, wanted me to ask you this question. He said, who is worse at making second, second half adjustments? Seemingly Scott Frost, who has routinely blown massive leads, or Willie Taggart? I mean, it has to be Willie Taggart. I mean, Colorado is not great, but they're infinitely better than ULM. I mean, FSU should have two losses to non-Power 5 teams right now. Boise State is obviously a great program. ULM is not. And I think there's the stats there are like 125th in most defensive categories. It's it's crazy how bad they are. So bad from Scott Frost, but I don't, it's not in the same stratosphere for me as Willie Taggart. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All right, Cincinnati at number five, Ohio State. Cincinnati zero, Ohio State 42. I'm just shaking my head because Ryan Day looks. We, we asked this question last week. We said, is, is he sort of like a, a Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma and so far, survey says yes. More games to play, but Cincinnati was well thought of. Luke Fickle, Ohio State guy, knows the system. People were high on Cincinnati. This game should have been a lot closer in theory. It was never close. It was not. Justin Fields looks good. Ohio State looks good. Michigan feels real sad. I don't think we have this game on the th- on the national game slate here, but UCLA, UCLA lost... I think San Diego State, San Jose State, one of those two. So I don't know how much stock you want to put in Cincinnati's win against UCLA. That would seem like a signature win. But, yeah, not the kind of look you want for Cincinnati. But all their whole season's still ahead of them. They weren't going to win this game. They wanted to be competitive, and they weren't. So that sucks. But let's keep going. Cal 20, number 13, Washington 19. This game took place, like, on Sunday morning because they had a huge delay. I can't believe that Washington only put up 19 here. I mean, Cal looking good. We talked about this game being an interesting one, and Jacob Eason goes down in his first important game at home. And, Alan, I went to bed at like 2.15 on Saturday, and I looked at some of the scores, and I remember seeing a live game in the second quarter. And I immediately Google, like, what, what is going on in Washington? Did they kick this game off at midnight? Like, what is happening? And saw, like, these crazy thunderstorms and they played the game. I don't know if that impacted the game or right. not. That's a late game even by West Coast Sanders. I mean, they played that game actually until, like, 1.30 in the morning their time. Either way, that's a massive win that maybe no one knows about. I'm sure a lot of you had no idea until we just told you that Cal beat Washington. Washington was ranked number 13. The Pac-12 continues to be a struggle bus, obviously, when it comes to getting a team into the playoff. But that's... That's a huge win for Cal. All right, let's keep going. Number 25, Stanford, 20, USC, 45. When I went to bed, I went to bed fairly early. Stanford was up like 17-3. I was like, man, looks like Stanford is going to put it on him. What? So their freshman, I don't know how to say his name. Slovis. Keaton Slovis, Caden Slovis. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just know it's Slovis. Slovis uh, had a record-breaking day throwing the ball. He's like a three-star recruit like Darnold. Does this save Clay Helton? We'll see, but big win for them. It could, but Stanford, as, I, as I'm as i going to toot my own horn on this one, I've tooted my own horn the wrong way, being wrong a lot today, too. <laughs> goes both ways, but this one I feel good about. I felt like Stanford was overrated this year. We talked about it. I picked USC to win this game despite not liking USC, uh, but this is just not... Stanford's in the midst of this weird little year this year. I think they're down. Either way, that's a great win for USC, I love that USC always has a good quarterback. Here we are in Florida, like a decade goes by, and we can't seem to get one. And they do always have a guy that can play back there. 
I mean, they just have a line of them. They're the next guy, and he can sling it. Now, they don't win games, but they can they can pass the football. So good for them. Keep watching the Pac-12. It's going to be topsy-turvy, I think, all year long, which makes the case for Utah even better. UCF 48, FAU 14. Is this UCF looking better, or are the wheels coming off at the Fighting Lane Kiffins? I feel like UCF looks good. This surprised me. I think FAU is going to be decent this year. They obviously played against Ohio State, and they were competitive, who's very good. And now they played against UCF, who might actually be very good again. So keep an eye on them. That's a great win for them either way. A lot of people thought that might have been kind of a trap game for them, and they they handled their business well. Miami 25, UNC another win for Mac Brown. They beat them 28-25. Mac Brown, 2-0. It's important to note that North Carolina lost six games last year, like right at the buzzer, basically. So this is not a bad North Carolina team. A lot of people kind of fell asleep on them because they had so many losses, but they were very competitive. Miami, as we said on the podcast, don't get too high. Don't get too off this game. Don't make too many judgments. Miami could be terrible. They looked pretty terrible. We looked pretty terrible. How do you feel about the Gators win versus Miami now? The same? Yeah, roughly the same. I think it's the storyline here is that UNC is a lot better because people looked at Miami's schedule and was like, all right, they lost against Florida, but look, they got cream puffs and starting with North Carolina next week, and North Carolina is not a cream puff. They've now beaten Miami and South Carolina, who are not bad teams, I don't think. So it doesn't really change. I think Miami is who we thought they were. UNC is just a lot better. Yeah, dream start, though, for Mac Brown. I mean, this is fantastic for UNC football. They've got to be beside themselves. Those are two good wins, SEC program and then a historically powerful program in Miami. All right, let's run through the SEC pretty quickly. BYU 29, Tennessee 26. This is crazy. I know the, the flames are rising higher in Knoxville. But BYU is a decent school and a decent program. So a win against them would have been good. A loss isn't bad, but it's the way they lost. They had this game. Blew it. Absolutely blew it. And, I don't, again, are Tennessee fans rioting or are they just drunk and asleep? I don't know. They're writhing. They're in pain. They're not like Florida State fans. They're feeling every hit, every body blow. And this is a weird one for me. As much as I, Alan, like Florida State being terrible, which I do, I, I'm sad that Tennessee is not good. I say it every year on the podcast. I love playing Tennessee in September. I love it when they're amazing. Their fans are second to none. They're the best. They're the most absurd. I, I, it, something is missing in my life when it's basically playing Kentucky and then Kentucky again instead of Tennessee. I want Agreed. them so badly to be good. All right, Vandy, oof, 24 on the road. Purdue, 42. Purdue's offense awoken, looked good, looked like what you expect from Jeff Yeah, Brom. good win for Purdue, I think. Derek Mason, time to go, probably last year. We'll see. Looking like that. Arkansas, 17. Man, this makes me happy, Alan. You called me out. Old Miss, 31. Matt Luke continues to do something. Look, Arkansas is not dealing with the situation that Matt Luke is, with the suspensions and the other stuff and the bad plug, and yet he goes and beats him by two scores. Matt Corral has a totally different game. He looks great. Uh, maybe Memphis is really good. Who knows? Uh, but I'll back off my Matt Luke criticism for this week. That was a good win, even though it was against Arkansas. To lane six. Close game for a long time here. Right. A lot of people thought this would be the case. Bo Nix not looking so good. Auburn 24. They get the win. Are you concerned? Uh, yeah. I mean, the offense should look a little better. The defense is obviously super legit. Tulane scored a lot of points the previous week. That defense will keep them in every game. Can they find the right gear? Auburn tends to get better on offense throughout the year if that's the direction they're going to go. I don't know. Kind of. Kind of weird. Good on defense, bad on offense. Can that flip a little bit for them? Yeah. Charleston Southern, 10. South Carolina, 
72. 72 with a freshman quarterback going nuts. Yeah, I have no idea what to think about this. Nothing, but if you're a Will Muschamp fan, it's better than like Charles the Southern 10 USC 30, which is what you would expect from this game. So we'll see. Maybe they found something with this guy. West Virginia, which we talked about. We said, Alan, isn't West Virginia horrifically bad? They, they barely beat James Madison. All they did was go get just destroyed by Missouri, 38-7. to Yeah. Oof. We talked about West Virginia every week last year on the pod because they had Will Greer and Dana Holgerson. We will not be talking about them at all this year probably. No, that that's the last you'll hear of West Virginia. Maybe for a long time. They're going to have to, I think, fire their new coach pretty quickly, actually. Mississippi State, 38, Southern Miss, 15. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good result for Mississippi State. That's what you would want from them. Yeah, that's not a ho-hum win. Southern Miss can play. That's about what you'd expect, like you said. Bama 62, New Mexico State 10. The takeaway here for me, Alan, is Nick Saban comes out in the media and they ask him, why aren't you playing harder teams? And I don't know if you saw this or not, but it's fantastic. And he said, well, if you would like to schedule the games for me, we'll play any team you want. You go ahead and try to call them and see if they'll want to play Alabama. It was a fantastic moment of rare candor from, from Nick Saban. He's I like, hey, it. we're trying to schedule anyone harder. We're playing the best teams we can play because nobody will play us. Kind of like it. Fantastic. Murray State, 17. Georgia, 63. Sure, whatever. Exactly. Eastern Michigan, 17. This one matters a little more. Kentucky, 38. Yeah, you know, Kentucky in this game, they lose their quarterback. We'll get to this. Terry Wilson now out for the year. I guess it's a fine result for them on this one. Uh, Kentucky is very interesting right now. Uh, we're going to get into them here in a minute, but this is a turning point for them. Like, who are they as a program? Are they going to slide back to SEC seller dweller? Are they going to maintain their status as maybe not quite a contender, but a solid program? Mark Stoops has been there for a while. We'll see. Let's, let's talk about Kentucky. Are you ready? We will see. And that was a decent win for them. Came at a huge cost. I think most Kentucky fans feel like the air just got taken out of their balloon. And like you said, good programs still make a bull. That's Kentucky's goal this year anyway. From the beginning was to make a bull. Good programs can still make a bull if the roster depth is there. So we will see. And it will start with their game against us. All right. Last year, of course, the streak ended. Painful loss to Kentucky felt like the season was in doubt for the Gators. Obviously, we turned it around. They had one of their best seasons ever. Um, let me go ahead and, before I get to the coaching, the headline with Kentucky is how much they lost. They lost the heart soul of their program, Benny Snell, their iconic running back, one of their better players in history. I, I think he's not just their production. He was their personality. Obviously, lost Josh Allen, who was a top 10 NFL draft pick. Lost a lot of other players, too. Uh Let's talk about their coach, Mark Stoops. This is year six. He's 38 and 39. Not great. Uh, but maybe not terrible in terms of Kentucky's history. Eddie Grant's been there for a while. He's in year four. Their DC is Brad White. This is his first year. They promoted him from their outside linebackers coach. The spread in this game is eight and a half. Florida favored by eight and a half. Last year it was 14 and a half. So it's smaller this year, even though Kentucky is maybe doesn't have the, quite the same team. So that shows a little bit more respect. So Kentucky's five-year recruiting talent composite rank is 34th. We're 16th. So Mullen is 4-2 and two against Stoops. Last year he was 4-1. and one. Now he's only 4-2. and two. We'll see if that matters. Only nine returning starters, five on defense, five on offense, four on defense. I guess it's one less on offense now that Terry Wilson is out. Notable players, not a lot that you would recognize. Lynn Bowden. 
is number one for them. You'll you'll see him. He's a he's a really nice wide receiver. They have some good guys on defense, but nobody who's nationally really recognized. Strength, their running game, their weird offense, and their defensive line. They have a legit defensive line. They have some big guys and they have a decent amount of depth. Weaknesses, not a lot of experience, not as much talent, and they've replaced their entire secondary. Like the top five or six guys all gone. So that is going to be a challenge for them all season. James, when you watch them on film, what did you see? Well, you know, you start off watching some Terry Wilson film, and then Terry Wilson gets hurt, and you switch gears, and you've got to go to a guy named Sawyer Smith. And if you didn't see the Terry Wilson injury, it's really unfortunate. He tore his patellar tendon, which is a bad injury. Yeah, it sucks. That's not like tearing your ACL. It's much worse. And it came from a horse collar tackle that was that was bad. I mean, it was a bad tackle, bad intent. Really unfortunate situation. But Sawyer Smith is is no no rookie. He's a junior. He played for Troy. He actually won the MVP of the bowl game he was in last year that they won against Buffalo when he was at Troy. He transferred largely because one of his coaches went to Kentucky, and that was kind of his guy that he had a big relationship with. And he came solely to be a backup, even though other schools wanted him. He was a winning quarterback at Troy. He's known for his accuracy. Big guy, but he's really known for throwing the ball accurately. He has a good downfield arm. He's not nearly the runner that Terry Wilson is. And that offense, like Terry Wilson actually had really accurate passing numbers last year, which is a complete mirage because it's so much run around throw. It's not, you know, what you think of when you think of throwing. And Sawyer Smith, he can run. He's like a Franks in all reality. He's, he's He can run it. He's not he's unathletic. Not, not going to run it, but he's also not Terry Wilson who's going to take it to the house if you, if you mess up your assignment. So their offense, as we chronicled well last year, will kind of just go over it again this year, especially when we do the podcast. It's a spread option heavy on the RPO. So this is not the spread option attack where you're passing the ball around like, you know, the Patriots would or, or you know, the Chiefs would. It's way more relying on the RPO. Lots and lots and lots of RPOs. Most of their plays, I'd say 75% of their plays. Have Can you say quickly what an RPO is? Yeah, an RPO is a run pass option. So it used to just be like that'd be your zone read play. And I'll start with the zone read, right? So the zone read would be you'd fake the handoff to your running back. You would read a defensive end. The quarterback would either keep the ball or hand it off based upon the read. That's the zone read. That graduated into the run pass option, which is rather obvious. If you're playing flag football, the run pass option is every play. <laughs> but in the run pass option, quarterback makes that same read or reads a passing defender and then pulls the ball out. And instead of just running, he can also throw. So you have a run or a pass option, which basically means, Alan, the receivers are not just blocking like they would in a zone read. They could either block or they could go for a pass route or they could fake blocking and then go for a pass route. Much more convoluted um, and, and complicated scheme. Most teams run RPOs, but Kentucky runs so many of them per game. It's very, very high, uh, much higher than you know most schools would run. So they're kind of a little unconventional in that regard. Probably the thing that they got us last year and the thing that really pops out on film with them is their favorite pass is what I'm just going to call the jump ball. They will throw normal passes, but if it's a high leverage moment, if it's third down and seven, game on the line, team plays man, they're very comfortable throwing like a 40-yard go route and letting their receivers that are big and physical just go get it. That's like their preferred mode of operation. So I don't want to say their offense is like high school-ish, but it's closer to that than it would be to a more sophisticated kind of style, which therefore puts a heavy premium on us doing what, Alan, tackling well. Yes. Something we just were abysmal with last year could not tackle anyone if you tackle this team because of the way they play in the high leverage situations they are going to give you chances to make them pay but if you cannot tackle them you're in trouble that's that's step one of stopping an rpo team and that's what you should look for you know this weekend on film 
Sawyer Smith, I expect to be able to play competently. And the Vegas line is showing that. I think if Terry Wilson was playing, that line might only be one and a half or two points different because they do view this Kentucky team as sort of a, a road grading running team. You're either going to beat them heavily because you get ahead of them or it's going to be a close game. Yeah, that line is interesting because normally you lose your starting quarterback. That's going to affect the spread. So we'll see if that that line climbs one way or the other on which way the money comes in. So keep an eye on that if you're someone who's interested in those types of things. Let's talk about their defense. They run a 3-4. Um, like I said, they have an entirely new secondary. What else are we expecting from them? Well, they defended us last year, and Mullen talked about this in in the presser, but they primarily used a lot of too deep zone. Now, they mix up the zones tremendously, which Mullen also talks about in the presser, but primarily their mode is to have two safeties high, and they'll switch all of the coverages underneath, which, of course, is great to confuse quarterbacks who can't get a good feel for what's going on coverage-wise anyway. But where they really beat us last year, especially in the second half, was they went man when we tried to spread them out. And they had the athletes to do so. They had the linebackers in the corners to just lock us down and play simple football. I don't think that's the case this year. They've been giving up quite a few passing yards against overmatched teams. I think what we know is what Stoops knows is that we're struggling to pass the ball over the middle of the field. I expect him to craft some zones underneath those safeties that will specifically confuse Franks. He knows what he knows what we like to do. He knows what Mullen wants to do. I expect him to specifically craft some some what you would call robbers, some plays where he expects to try to pick the ball off on a certain look to mess with Franks' head. A lot of this game, I think, Allen is going to be played with Franks' mind, you know, making the right decision versus Stoops' defensive calls against him. So this is going to be very much a, a fun a fun game. And in fact, what you want to look for is our game plan. So last year, we did try to attack Kentucky through the air because they forced us to do so. We were not successful. Franks was 17 of 38 for 232, two touchdowns and a pick. It was a struggle. A lot of incomplete passes, a lot of difficult situations. I don't expect them to change very much from that other than I expect them to play more zone. Now, the key for me here, Alan, is what Dan Mullen said. And rather than me say it, I'm going to play it for you. But there's going to be a great play-calling battle in this one. And more important than this, fans of this show know we love game theory. We talked about how we'll get more into it as the season goes on. But I want to play for you a clip from Dan Mullen talking definitively about game theory as it exists in play-calling. Hey, hey, Dan, you've had a lot of experience against Stoops over the years. What, what about his secondary in particular, his coverages, make him kind of challenging coach against? Well, I think, I think he, they, have, they have a very good uh, defensive system, very complimentary. You know what I mean? He knows his system. Uh, they have the answers, you know, to the questions. That That's always a big one, you know, is, okay, hey, uh, they do enough things to cause you problems. It's, okay, well, if, if they're going to do this, we want to attack here. Okay, but he's like, okay, well, then they can do that to take that play, that away from you. And even though that might, okay, then if they do that, it's going to be open over here. And then, okay, we can make also this adjustment. You know, this call is going to take that now away from you. And so I think that's one of the things that, that they do a really, really good job of mixing things up. They mix up, do a good job of mixing up pressures uh, and coverage looks and, you know, of, of dropping eight guys into coverage, sometimes rushing different, you know, four or five and six man rushes and, and mixing up the different looks they give you with that. And, uh, and I think, you know, knowing his system and how long he's done it, uh, they he knows the answers to the to the questions as you attack them in one area they can make the adjustments to to take that away. So as you can hear Dan talk about there, 
he's mentioning this. You start with this play, Alan, and you know this is the look you want Franks to see. And then Stoops knows that. That's the look that you're looking at. And therefore, because you know that, now you add this wrinkle. And then now Stoops knows that, so he adds this wrinkle. And throughout the game, there's this leveling concept. Now, if this game was played just between Dan Mullen and Mark Stoops, it would be at a professional level, much higher. The fun part about college football is it's being played with the players in the field. And this is not like chess where you can just move the piece on your own. These pieces have thoughts and emotions of their own. And they may not do what you want them to do. Or physical limitations. Correct. So both coaches may say, okay, this is the counter, do this. But they can't do it or they don't do it. And that's how these college football games are won and lost. So for me, those comments there are sort of the beauty of the game. That's what the coaches are doing. That's a lot of fun. You can tell Dan loves that. He loves that challenge. Right. And that's what they're crafting during the week. What play call can I create to mess up their players knowing that Stoops is going to want to do this, but this particular player struggles with that, you know, et cetera. And that just goes on and on. That concept with game theory is called leveling. It's a major concept in football. It's something that, you know, gets higher and higher as the football, um, you know, pyramid goes up, right? You're Tom Brady or the top of that pyramid. You're Felipe Franks. You're learning and trying to grow. But that's interesting. So something fun there for you to kind of, you know, peel back the onion and see what's going on behind the scenes. It's not just quarterbacks and running backs and linemen playing this game. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it. I love it. I love that part of football. And I was having a conversation with someone about why I like football so much. And that's where it's at. I mean, there's the physicality of like, you know, kind of athletic marvel, seeing people do really cool things out there in any kind of sport. But the chess match nature is like, let me explain to you what's happening when they huddle up. Each person has a very particular responsibility and we're going to in sync execute something potentially really complex. And we're trying to be not only physically powerful, but we're trying to be deceptive in what we're doing as well. And that's fantastic. And I love that. And you can get out leveled. You can level too high. You know, if your opponent is only reading you at level one and you're throwing 18 tricks at him and he doesn't see any of those tricks, he just does the thing you're, kind of fainting away from, then he's going to stop you. And so you have to be on the right level. And this is what's funny when these coaches know each other so well. And also, like you said, with Kentucky, if they're going to try and run some exotic schemes on the back end, can their players execute it? Do they not go to the right spot? And all of a sudden there's a huge hole where there's not supposed to be. And you've done something tricky that your players can't actually execute. That'll be a very interesting thing to watch because maybe Mark Stoops would like to do some weird stuff, but those guys can't mentally or physically handle it. And that's what comes down to what you just said. So then what does Dan Mullen think Mark Stoops will institute based upon the actual talent he has on the field? And there is where the pregame planning is done. The in-game adjustments are totally different. Because now you've seen what they're doing and you switch. But there's both of these natures, both of these combinations. It's one major reason why coaches love to watch tons of film is can they get a good feel for that? And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Again, it's something obviously you and I both love and we love to talk about with you guys. We wanted to tee that up because, of course, next week we will be looking at some of these situations that occurred and how they went down. And there is, in fact, a little teaser for you. Allen, penalties and turnover margin. Florida is amongst the worst in both of those Kentucky is above average in both. Do you see any cause for concern or too early in this season to factor that in? Too early, I think. Obviously, we had a really undisciplined game against Miami in Week 0, so I don't want to take a lot of, I don't know, take away too much from a very small sample size. College football is a small sample size in general, but 
too early for me. What about you? I agree at this point in time, although, you know, the penalty situation with Florida has been what it's been forever. Sure. We'd expect to be poor there. But so far, no cause for concern. This game may change our mind, but for now, no, there's no discernible advantage one way or the other. Injury-wise, we've already mentioned that Tony, of course, is out for at least a few weeks. C.J. Henderson is listed as doubtful with a mild ankle he's, sprain. He's on the depth chart still as the starter. I wonder if that's a little gamesmanship. Dan Mullen likes to be a little tricky with his injury reports. We'll Could see. be. Yeah, C.J. said he wants to play. He'd play right now. I think if you're the coaching staff, you don't play him. I would not, unless he just is by Wednesday, no pain, walking around. Sometimes those ankle injuries hurt a lot, and then two days later, you're fine. If that's the case, then let him play. But I would be getting those freshmen ready to play regardless. Yeah, he, he still has the reputation of being Deion Sanders. And in that case, a team that you need to tackle a lot against, I might throw Chester in there. That guy likes to hit people. He's a little bullying. Chester. You know, why not? I don't know what they do, but I would not be concerned as a coach about my cover corners in this game. That's not a problem. You could put Marco Wilson on their best receiver, and you could do a lot of other things. I would sit CJ down and say, we're going to need you later. What we don't need is for you to take a mild ankle sprain and make it way worse. So we'll see how that plays out. And Dan Mullen said as much. He will not play unless he's 100%. Agreed. I 100% agree with that philosophy. All right, game prediction. Let's get your keys to victory. And first, I want to ask you like an emotional question. We haven't talked about this yet at all, maybe because we're just hurting from it, maybe because we don't care. I don't know. The streak ended last year. Right. Right, at you know 30-whatever it was. And now Kentucky wants to start, of course, a streak of their own. Maybe they're just happy it's over. It's, it's nice that that's not the storyline. I'm not Googling and reading 55 storylines about the streak, right? But it's also ridiculous that we lost to Kentucky last year. Let's just put that out there. That's still absurd. We flirted with this many, many years in a row. It's one reason why the Vegas line is tight. We've played Kentucky very close often. Does this factor in at all, the fact that we blew the streak that this this particular group of players was the one that blew the streak, that Franks was the quarterback. Do you think this is in the back of their minds at all? I hope not. If anything, I think it deflates the game a little bit for the Kentucky players. It's not something that they either had mental baggage about or probably that they were so hungry for. That matters some. The motivation is, I think, lessened for them. You know, it's interesting for UF right now because losing to Kentucky once – on one of their best seasons. Actually, it's fine. But that game was at home, and now they're going to be playing at home. We don't want to lose two years in a row to Kentucky. That's not a good look. Once every 33 years is fine, or whatever it was. I I, I don't feel a lot of emotions around this game right now, but if we were to lose two years in a row, I certainly would feel them coming into next year. Yeah, Kentucky feels the emotions because they have not beaten us, Allen, in their home stadium in like 40 years or whatever that time period is. It's a long, long time. It's sold out. And they're, they're going to be amped. But I, some of the, I think the, we'll see, you know, Terry Wilson not in this game. They're still probably going to be pretty hyped. But I don't think it has the same emotional, like, peaks as it did previously. No, they got over that hump. And that was the big, big, you know, monkey on their back. And they were able to, to shake that free. So the keys to victory then for this for this game for you. Well, last year, it was obvious. We lost the line of scrimmage battle. Now, this was when we were still playing Slayton and Conliffe. We did not have David Reese in this game. I would expect just from that alone that we are different. I've, I think our linebackers are much better this year. I think Schuler and Campbell are 
competent up front. They're going to make some plays. I'm not expecting Kentucky to run all over us and break huge plays like they did last year. I think we'll be smarter and better on the back end, too. They beat our safeties with some big plays. If Sean Davis is playing well, I think that's going to cover a lot. I don't see a lot of avenues for them to play well offensively in this game. They could, but that's not my expectation. So I guess that's a roundabout way of saying, can we tackle the way that we did towards the end of last season? Are we tackling the way we did against Miami and Kentucky last year? If we're tackling well out in space, I think we win this game fairly easily. Fairly easily, And then can Franks, I don't know, can he take advantage of where they're weak, which is in the secondary? Does he allow them to confuse them if they can? Or does he take advantage of the fact that our receivers are much better on paper than their defensive backs? So are we getting big plays on offense and are we limiting their big plays? Yeah, the key to me as I think about this game is, is we could say, I could say, you know, the things that you're saying, which are completely right, right? Stop the run, tackle well, Kentucky's more limited. But all that keeps coming into my mind is this eight and a half point point spread. And the reason that's relevant to me is on paper, we are so much better than this team. We're coming in as a top 10 team. They're way down from where they were last year. They just lost a, a productive starting quarterback. And this is where the Gator fans, I think we have to look ourselves in the mirror. We keep thinking of like our ceiling performance level. That's but true. we're not hitting it, right? Miami just lost to UNC on the road, and we can kid ourselves all we want. We almost lost to Miami, could have lost to Miami. We have not put together, in my opinion, against an opponent that wants to beat us a really good game. Florida State was terrible last year, and we cranked them. That's nice. South Carolina was horrific last year, and we cranked them. And then we played Michigan, who was not even remotely interested in playing us, and we cranked them, right? I would like to see us crank an opponent when it mattered. Now, Kentucky is not a top-level opponent, but you know what? They're, I think they're going to offer more resistance than Florida State last year did, than South Carolina did last year. There's more emotion in this game for them. They're undefeated. It still means something to them. I would like to see us play a game. So the, the, my key to this game, if they want to get me excited on this podcast, if they want me to come in on Monday and be amped up and believe, we need to lay the wood to Kentucky. This needs to be more than a 9 or 10-point win. We need to tackle well. We need to play aggressively. We need to be competent on offense. We need to execute some blocks well and make some downfield passes. If that's the case, maybe we move our ceiling needle further. So I'm going to say the key to an actual victory is not just winning this game for us. It's winning the perception game. It's moving the needle forward that this team this year can play good, competent football and give me a reason to think that we have got a chance to do something, to compete with the big boys. That's what I want to see. That's a victory for me in this game. Just beating Kentucky at this point is not enough. I feel like I need to have that kind of victory. That's very interesting. This game does set up well for us because, you know, I don't think we want it to, with their secondary being so weak and their defensive line being so relatively stout. This is not a game where we're going to pound the ball. We're going to be forced to make plays to the air. And if we do that, I think we'll win by a lot. If we can't do that, it's going to show up quickly. We're not going to be able to rely on our running game, I think, to bail us out. So that might force us into some more high leverage situations, which would be I guess it's a kind of a boomer bust cycle there. We could score a lot of big plays. This could go really badly for us. Um I don't know. That's gonna be that's why I was talking about their secondary versus IY receivers. We have such an advantage there theoretically, 
if we don't lean into it and take advantage of that, that means there's major flaws here along our offensive line protection-wise or Felipe being able to get us into the right situations throwing the ball down the field. Okay, James, give me your score. So I just gave a, a passionate plea. You did. For what I wanted to see. Will we see it? No. Because that would be going against all of the data I have in front of me. And I am a man of data. I'm also a man of emotion. I'm an Italian man. I love emotion and passion. But at the end of the day, the data speaks for itself. Okay. And right now it tells me, Alan, what you just said is true. Their secondary is down. That's never mattered in Felipe's career. Their defensive line is good. That's mattered a lot. If you get any pressure on Felipe Franks, panic mode will set in. His eyes will come off being downfield. He's not going to look the right way. He's on the road. He's going to, I don't know what he's going to do. Who knows what he's going to do emotionally on the road, right? I think we win the game. I don't think I get what I want. So I think we win this game 23 to 13. And if we win this game 23 13, Allen, our offense will be sub 100 three games into the season. So the question will be that the last three or four games of last year artificially inflate our offensive levels under Felipe Franks? Or again, is this the game that moves the needle? Because if we score 36 or 37, like we certainly should, progress. If we're in the mid-20s again, questions should ruminate in your mind. So I don't think I'm going to get what I want. Man, I hope I do. But I do think we cover the spread, but just barely. I think we cover the spread as well. I'm tempted to say 30 or 33. I'm going to go slightly lower. I'm going to go 30 to 13. I see Kentucky. It'd be hard for me to imagine Kentucky scoring more than... 20 points unless we give them points if Kentucky is around unless this guy Sawyer Smith is just a revelation we don't I've never watched a single